listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. As you know, um, two weeks ago, I had something called a uh, cardiac ablation because I have an irregular heartbeat. And what a cardiac ablation is, they burn, somehow they burn scar tissue so your heart doesn't race. But what's weird is I was diagnosed with this irregular heartbeat like eight years ago, but I think I've had it my whole life. And now that my heartbeat is regular, it's throwing me off. I wake up in the middle of the night and instead of going bump, 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 it's normal, which normal people go through. And it's freaking me out. But I check my vitals. I check my blood pressure and all that. And I'm fine. It's just that I have to get used to it. It's sort of like that movie with Val Kilmer where he was blind and then he got his sight back and he couldn't get used to it. And I'm having really weird dreams. That might have something to do with it. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, well, I had brought up medicine because, you know, he's he's not only a doc, he's a rock. So I, I like to say his book is his book out is called The... Uh, rock doc but he's i think he's like a dr rocker and he's got a fascinating story and my guest is neil ratner how you doing neil okay what's up steve how are you today are you feeling better after your ablation apparently not <laughs> no i you know it's funny i i was it was two weeks ago i feel for doctor you, you know you've seen different things and you know you work with uh anesthesia i know the one was i can't pronounce it but we'll talk about it the rebuff of all what is it called yeah, I I had a cardiac version a few weeks ago, and a cardiac it was something where they put you under for like five minutes. That stuff just you get just get knocked out, and then you just wake up like ten minutes, like nothing happened. Miracle drug. It is. I'm telling you, it's a miracle <laughs> drug for us anesthesiologists and for patients alike. Change yeah. the practice of anesthesia. Now I got to ask you. You know, you've had fascinating life with with the doctor and the music and the tours when you wrote your book is there any stories that didn't make it that you wanted to make it but the editor said there's just not enough room well first of all it's a self-published book so whatever editors i used i had the final say so (laughs) (laughs) but there is one story that somehow i forgot to put in the book it's okay because uh, I published it on media.com and and occasionally I'll use it in places. And that was the story of me going to Woodstock, Woodstock 69. Now, they're supposed to to redo Woodstock. I know they said it wasn't going out, it is going. How old were you when you went to Woodstock? I was, uh, let's see, I had just turned 19. Okay, so... What was the feeling? Because you, you think about it now, there was no social media back then, and everyone just found out about it. What was the feeling when you were going there? Did you feel like you were going to see history in the making, or did you just sit there and think you were going to a concert? You know, originally, you know, when I got the tickets, an old girlfriend at the end of the summer, we were breaking up. She was going to be an exchange student in Spain for a year, and she handed me these four tickets. I said, what's this? She said, oh, it's it's a big music festival. I know you like music. It's my goodbye gift to you. Okay, great. You know, I did not like large concerts, uh, and so I was hesitant to go at first. But then I got a couple of friends together. They were anxious to go. I looked at the list of bands that were supposed to play. Didn't know many of them, but certainly there were some huge groups that we were aware of. And so we said, okay, let's do it. I realized 
that there was something different going on, something special. Uh, I would say about uh, five minutes before Richie Havens went on. (laughs) (laughs) And I certainly realized it by the time he came off because I was sitting there with my friends and you look around and you see just this incredible sea of people and you know whatever's going to happen, this is going to be something unique, different, and special. And of course, as the hours marched on and the days marched on, we became more and more aware of how special it was, but we also were kind of in survival mode, (laughs) making sure that we could find stuff to eat and, you know, and and you know the other saying, uh, if you really remember too much, you really weren't there. Right. (laughs) So, I got to ask you. Yeah. I got to ask you this. I I was doing a little research, and and your childhood dreams were to be a drummer and a doctor. That's what I read. How did you, that's so across the board. How did you come up with those two dreams? Like, how did you know you wanted to do them? You know, um, the drummer part was the thing I think I knew first. From a very young age, you know, I was fidgety. And it was like I had rhythms running around in my brain that just had to get out one way or another. And so, you know, my mother would constantly yell at me, Neil, stop banging the silverware on the table. (laughs) And, uh, you know, eventually uh, they realized that uh, music was in my blood and and drumming was where I wanted to go with it. So they bought me a pad and some sticks and I started some lessons. And I um, played in the school band, the school orchestra. At the same time, You know, I was somewhat educationally motivated, and although I wanted to be a rock and roll star, as most of the people in my generation did, you know, I also was somewhat realistic to think that that may not happen, and I had this real fascination with the human body and biology, and you know, back in the day, we had a family doctor that was a real family doctor, (laughs) like today, where you have to go to specialists and this and that. You know, I, I find it quite amazing, actually, when I go to a doctor today. Doctors don't touch you anymore. Isn't, you know, it's all down to... <laughs> yeah, isn't that weird? Like, like me growing up, we had Dr. Cohen, and we went to him for everything. And Of course. You went in, and he'd just look at you, and he used to tell my mother, he'd say, you know what, he's got a cold. With medicine, he'll get better in a week. Without medicine, he'll get better in seven days. Because he's like, basically, it's a cold. But you're right. Because now, I mean, I wanted to get a regular doctor, and it's like impossible. You have to wait like a month and a half. And when you go, again, when I learned medicine, and when I was like even a third and fourth year uh, medical student, and I did rotations in the hospital, um, one of the first things I learned was you must do a good history and physical on every patient. And the physical part meant touching a patient. You felt their abdomen. You checked for a hernia. I mean, you know, you looked in the eyes and the mouth and everywhere else. Now, it's all about lab tests, and I'll send you to this specialist, I'll send you to that specialist. So that whole idea when I was a kid of that all-encompassing, you know, family physician who was your friend and savior and everything else just really appealed to me. I loved the idea of the human body and being able to use your hands to fix it. Uh, and so, you know, that was uh, that was the other part of the dream. Now, 
I read also that you were you like prefer percussion to drums or were you more what were you more into? No, I was a kid drummer. Okay. I, I want yeah, I was definitely a kid drummer. Uh I loved sitting behind the kit. <laughs> that was that was really what appealed to me. Now of course I also played in the marching band, so that was very interesting and helpful because the beats that you learn in a marching band can easily be transferred into rock and roll, R&B, soul. And then I played the, in the uh, high school orchestra, I played the timpani, which gave me a whole nother perspective of percussion, in a sense. And when I moved up to Woodstock uh, about 15 years ago, uh, my wife had been a dancer her whole life. And she had taken up African dancing. And so she found a whole African group up here that she could study with. And she said, you know, they also teach African drumming. And that was something I wasn't very proficient in. And so I spent a good number of years up here learning that. And I did enjoy that. And if you ever come to my house, you'll see a, a big collection of djembe's and dunduns and all kinds of African paraphernalia. Now... You know, you, you said you love being behind the kit. When did you decide that, you know, you were going to make this, you were going to at least try to make it a career? I mean, and I know you ended up in the music business with different avenues, but how did you start, how did you get into the music business? Well, you know, probably like every other kid, you know, I played the drums and there were other friends of mine that played different instruments. And so, you know, we formed a band. Um, and we had a hot band in high school. Looked like we were going to get uh, a record deal. We had some uh, offers, sort of, <laughs> but that never happened. And even when I went off to college, I got in a band, <laughs> and 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 I had this vague hope. I was a pre medical student, but I had this vague hope that I could be a drummer, and 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 that continued uh, right on up to the point where I got into the business end of the business. And, and what happened was. In between my sophomore and junior year of college, I was a pre-med student. And I'm sure, Steve, you're aware of how hard it is to get into medical school. Oh, yeah. Then, now, probably always, you know, there just aren't enough spots for the number of people that want to get in. And I had the opportunity to sign up and get a license as an operating room technician in a two-year program. And I figured, that's got to help me get into medical school. So... That would be my summer vacation. I needed to live in New York City because I was going to school at the University of Vermont. And I took a summer sublet uh, on 13th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, the East Village of New York City, <laughs> in the summer of 1969. So you can imagine what that was like with the Fillmore down the block, the electric circus, hippies everywhere. It was a, a, a fabulous time to be in that part of the city. After a couple of days of living in this new apartment, I started to hear live music coming from upstairs. And, and being a musician, I waited a day or two, and I said, I got to go and see what's going on. And I knock on the door, and a, a, a shortish kind of guy with long hair, guitar strapped around his neck, answers the door, invites me in. We start to talk, and he tells me his name is Rick Derringer. Okay. Now, at the time, I, I didn't recognize him, but I certainly knew the name. I was a music guy, and I knew of the McCoys, and I knew of their hit song, Hang On Sloopy. 
And so Rick and I got into a whole conversation. He told me that he, his brother Randy, and the bass player from the McCoys, Randy Hobbs, were now living in the apartment building because they had been hired by Johnny Winter to be his new band, which would be called Johnny Winter and. And so Rick and I got real friendly. I had a little band that summer. He heard me play. He knew I was a good drummer. And when I left to go back to school, I said, Rick, I'm going back to school, but get me a job as a drummer. Okay, Neil, we'll see. Eight months later, I got a call from Rick, and he starts telling me about Johnny's brother, Edgar. A fabulous band, and I was ready for him to say, and you're going to be the drummer, and he says to me, and we would like you to be the road manager. <laughs> I said, road manager? <laughs> What's a road manager? I don't want to be a road manager. I was just going to ask you, what what is a road manager? What, what does a road manager do? A road manager is the manager on the road, <laughs> just as it sounds. So basically, the road manager has to arrange uh, all the travel, right? Where's the band going to stay? How's the band going to get there? Uh, the road manager has to uh, connect with the promoter. Make sure that if you have a rider with all kinds of special requests, that they've all been met. Uh, get the band to the gig, get the band home, make, keep the band happy, make sure everything sounds good. <laughs> the road, collect the money, the road manager does all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt up for the challenge. Rick convinced me that it would be a great opportunity for me and an opportunity that I could use as a jumping off point. You never know who will need a drummer and who I'll meet. And so I took that job and that started me on a five-year journey uh, through the music business. Now, you worked with a bunch of different bands. How did you, how do you go from job to job? Is it when someone's not on tour then you look for another job? And it's not like now where you can just put it, you know, you can send social media and say to someone, hey, I'm a road manager, da, da, da. You know, then you can, get a job but how did you go from job to job was it very high on people referring you or how does that work yeah well i'll tell you how each each uh you know there were three different changes i would say and i'll tell you how that happened so i did i was road manager for the winter first of all road managers are there whether you're on the road or not because there's plenty to do for a road manager even when you're not on the road maybe you're in the studio uh, maybe you're doing press, maybe, you know, so the road manager is always busy, less busy, certainly when you're not on the road. So after about a year with Edgar, we parted ways, but it, you know, I was just had enough. And um, you're right, to look for a job back then, it was all through who you knew, personal connections, you know, all kind of stuff like that. And so... You know, I started to talk to people that I knew. I knew a lawyer, and he said, look, I know this manager. He's a very prominent manager, has a lot of great groups. He's looking for an assistant. I think you'd be great for him. So that manager's name was D'Anthony. And at that time, D'Anthony was managing Humble Pie, Peter Frampton, Jay Giles, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And uh, so I interviewed with D. We hit it off immediately, and he hired me as his special assistant, meaning I went out on the road with all the groups, uh, not so much as a road manager, but just to be his eyes and ears and also to collect the money. Back in the day, nobody trusted anybody, and groups got paid, usually in cash, at the gig. Okay. <laughs> and there were all kinds of crazy, complicated deals, 
So you needed somebody to count ticket stubs, count empty seats, and make sure you were getting paid what you were supposed to be getting paid. And ostensibly, that was my job with Fee, although I did much more. And I went out on all this, I went out with Humble Pie, I hung out with Peter Frampton, I went out with Jay Giles, and then I went out with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Their tour manager was not very good. And so I sort of kept picking up parts of his job, and I got very close to the group. And in the middle of the tour, Greg Lake said to me, I want you to meet someone. Unbeknownst to me, they were switching management, and their new management, and their new manager was going to show up at a gig, and Greg wanted me to meet him. And so I met him uh, in Miami, actually, and uh, he said, look, I'm the new manager. I know I need a, a, someone great like you to handle everything on the road. Come live in London and, and take the job as our general operations director. And so I uh, then took that job, went, lived in London. And while I was in London working for them, uh, I had this concept of an all-in-one production company. Back in the day, groups would use multiple companies, a sound company, a lighting company, a trucking company. There were too many people involved. There were no computers, no cell phones. It was all very disorganized, very complicated. And I felt, look at a circus. It's all under one roof, you know? If, if I could create that kind of a company where I could go to these large groups and say, look, you just talk to me, tell me what you want. I'll take care of it all. And so uh, I formed that company and uh, did multiple things with that company and ultimately uh, left the business after that. Why did you leave the business? Did you feel it was a crossroads or just you were tired? I mean, you know, plus, you know, it's got to be very high pressure and also sort of like babysitting. Totally. <laughs> high pressure and babysitting to a certain extent. Less babysitting when I had the production company because the groups had their own babysitters. More babysitting when I was a tour manager, road manager. Once I had the production company, there were a whole different set of problems. Um, I did significant things with this production company. We started with some small stuff for the Bee Gees and Genesis, and then I went on and did a huge Emerson, Lake and Palmer tour with all kinds of production and multiple trucks and everything. And then um, a person I had made, I had gotten friendly. Uh, when I first got to London, working for Emerson, Lake and Palmer, an old girlfriend from college called me up and said, hey, you're in London now. I'm here too. I'm, I'm married. I want you to meet my husband. Come to the house. Let's hang out. Well, her husband's name was Peter Watts. And Peter was the chief sound technician for the Pink Floyd. So Peter and I had gotten extremely friendly. And when I went to form a company, I needed some technical expertise. And Peter knew the right people for me and helped me form the company. After I did this Emerson Lake Impometor, I got a surprise call from Peter. And he said, look, uh, we just, the, the, the band is recording the Dark Side of the Moon album. And I've tried to do production for a short tour we did because we're trying it out before the album's even released. And we don't have enough equipment. I want this tour to be the biggest tour ever, the most produced tour ever, Quadraphonic Sound. And the only way I could do it is if your company partners with us. And he said, I've already spoken to Steve O'Rourke, the manager of Pink Floyd. He agrees with me. And uh, we want you to, to join the Dark Side of the Moon tour. And so uh, I did that. 
uh, and I'm very proud of that because it was, you know, certainly the most technologically advanced tour of its time. And you know that how long that album stayed on the charts. Right. Uh, and then, <laughs> so I did that tour, and then we were so successful with the combined equipment, and the Floyd weren't touring for a while, so we we went out and did a couple of other tours. We did Three Dog Night, we did T-Rex, and then, you know, rock and roll lifestyle, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as they say. I ended up with uh, kidney stones in a hospital in London, and late one night, uh, an American movie came on called Not as a Stranger about a group of residents and how they go through their residency and they become country doctors and and I had this epiphany and I said you know what I'm not going to be the drama I've accomplished everything that I set out to accomplish in the business end of the business now it's time to get serious go back to the states go back to school and follow that second dream of becoming a physician. But isn't it hard to walk away? I mean, you're saying, you know, you just, I know you, you accomplished what you had to accomplish, but it's like anything. You're good at what you're doing, and you're going to leave something that you're probably getting paid well for. I mean, that's got to be a hard decision. It was and it wasn't. Uh, I hadn't really set out to be in the business end of the music business. Don't forget, I had set out to be a drummer. That was never going to happen, certainly not at that point. Uh, and, you know, I felt good. I felt complete. I felt like I didn't need to do that anymore. But I had other dreams and aspirations. And I felt in life you don't have to stick to just one thing. If, if you believe in other things and you're satisfied with what you've done, move on. Go see what else you can accomplish in life. So you'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm out of the business you decide to go back to college. Now, then you learn Spanish. How did, how did you end up going to medical school in Mexico? So I, you know, I walked out of the University of Vermont, basically, dismissed below scholarship. So I didn't have many credits to my name. It wasn't so easy to get back into college. I was a little bit older, you know, and the colleges, certainly as a pre-med student, didn't think that I was serious enough for them to take me. But eventually... I got into a school in Long Island, Hofstra University, uh, and I did pretty well. But I was older, I had this crazy, uh, discontinuous education, and there were not that many slots uh, for American medical schools. And I applied to 25 or so, and I was rejected from all of them. Uh, again, the medical schools looked at me, and, and back then, they weren't really looking for well-rounded individuals. I know this has been a complaint of the public forever, you know, that doctors are not humanistically inclined. And so, you know, back in those days, it was the same way. You know, they were looking for guys with the guys and gals with the best grades, period. Uh, and I couldn't compete on that level. There were foreign medical schools that were very aware of the overflow of American students and had set up their programs so that they could accept that overflow. And I looked at a few of those schools. Guadalajara seemed to be the best, Guadalajara, Mexico, in that I saw that like over 90% of the American students who went there were able to get back into the American medical system. And I had a little Spanish from uh, high school and college, not enough to go there, but I figured that would be the right choice. I went to a language school for a couple of months be able to pass the equivalency test because school was in Spanish. Right. <laughs> so you had to be somewhat proficient, although it was very difficult to be able to do that 
totally in Spanish, and we had ways around that in terms of learning the material in English so we could pass the English exams. So you learn you learn the Spanish and you're learning now you go down there. What is it like when you get down there? I mean, you know, you're you're in a, a country where it's no one speaks English, especially back then. How do you Yeah, nineteen seventy six. Yeah, how do you how do you adapt? How do you adapt to that? You know, I was a bit older. I had traveled the world. I had been in the rock and roll business. I had lived in Europe. And so for me, it was an exciting opportunity, unlike most of the other American students. Most of the American students were very fearful. And they isolated themselves in one little neighborhood where they all lived next to each other and hung out with each other. I didn't see it that way. I, I loved traveling. Uh, and I loved experiencing new places and new cultures. And my wife agreed. We didn't live in the uh, isolated American ghetto. We lived in a Mexican neighborhood and we tried to embrace the culture and, and, and appreciate the experience for what it was, knowing that this was somewhat of a special experience for us. So, you know, it, it was just a matter of attitude. So did you pick up the classes well, even though it was in Spanish? No, definitely not. <laughs> it's very difficult. I was conversational. You know, I could talk to people, I could get by just fine. But to try and learn medicine in a foreign language, when it was a language that I basically learned in a language school a couple of months before, was pretty uh, impossible. And it was the same for most Americans. But we were fortunate. In Guadalajara, in the medical school at that time, there were many Cubans. The first wave of Cubans had come over, I think, in 74 when uh, Castro took over for Batista. And the first wave wasn't the boat people. The first wave was sort of uh, uh, the elite, the intellectuals, who knew that they should be getting out quickly. You know what I mean? And so their kids, lots of their kids wanted to be professionals. They wanted to be doctors. But they couldn't get into American medical schools, and many of them ended up in Guadalajara. Now, the good news was, they spoke pretty good English, and they spoke great Spanish, obviously. <laughs> they wanted to pass the American exams just like we did, and so we would form study groups with them at night, and we would help them with their English, and they would help us with our Spanish, particularly looking at old exams so we understood the questions and we understood how to answer them, and that was a tremendous help in, in getting all of us through. So you, you go to Mexico, you get through medical school then what do you do because you're in mexico yeah of course you want to come back to the states but does a does a degree from medical school hold the water that would if you had gone to hofstra or another medical school no what you had to do there was a prescribed way of doing it for foreign medical students and it was something called the fifth pathway and what that meant was there were various hospitals around america that you could apply to to do a year of unpaid internship once you've completed that year, you are then eligible to take the same licensing exams as American students. And so that's what I did. I applied for a fifth pathway program. I was accepted in the hospital in uh, Manhattan, and I did that year of unpaid internship. Once I passed the licensing exam, then I was eligible, just like any other American student, of applying for a residency in whatever specialty I chose. I chose surgery. 
and I was accepted into a surgical residency. I did that for a couple of years, but realized that it really wasn't for me. And of course, the anesthesiologists who who were at the other end of the table and knew my story said, "You're you're on the wrong end of the table. You should be on our end of the table with your experience, your knowledge of drugs. This is where you need to be." And you know, it was a big joke. But in reality, it wasn't a joke because having been in the rock and roll business, I had an intimate knowledge of medications <laughs> on a much greater depth than they did, <laughs> for real. And it helped me later on when I created uh, a, the new, a new type of specialty, office-based anesthesiology, which really depended on those kind of drugs and medicines, medicines actually, you know. In, in, in the operating room, there were medicines. On the street, there were drugs. <laughs> now... How do you go about getting a job in anesthesiology? Because they told you you should be on the other side, but of course that guy who told you that, he doesn't want you to take his job. Is it a whole, you have to go through a whole new process. It seems like you, you, you recreate yourself a lot. How did you jump into becoming an anesthesiologist? What was your first job? Well, you know, it was interesting. By the time I was finishing my anesthesia residency, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a doctor anymore because I had spent so many, it was almost 10 years since I had left the music business. Um, and I did not want to be a classical anesthesiologist. You know, 90% of my friends and other residents were, were all uh, getting jobs in hospital-based groups, which is what most anesthesiologists did. You know, you join a group, and you're on call every third night, and you, you rotate through every type of surgery, and uh, that's what your life is. I couldn't see myself in hospitals anymore. And there weren't that many options for an anesthesiologist. There was pain, you know, pain centers were starting, a few other things, but I looked around the world and I noticed that many doctors around the world were operating in their offices. In New York, it wasn't happening very much. Uh, doctors were doing very small procedures and I realized the reason it wasn't happening was uh, twofold. I mean, anesthesiologists were afraid to go out into offices alone, you know. And the reasons being was the drugs that were available in those days were geared towards hospital-based medicine, and the monitors were geared towards hospital-based medicine. And so anesthesiologists in general were afraid that they couldn't handle it, and they couldn't do it safely. With my level of experience and rock and roll and, and drugs, medicines, whatever, I felt that I could do it. And so uh, I uh, decided that I will be one of the first to try and devote my career to office-based anesthesiology. And so that, that was the job that I decided, but then, you know, how am I going to get a job like that? Who am I going to approach? So I thought about it for a while, and then... About a month before the end of my residency, I was reading a tabloid page, uh, the gossip page of a tabloid, and I read that Michael Jackson had gone to this certain uh, plastic surgeon's office in New York. And I said, geez, you know, if he went to that office, that's the guy I want to talk to. Not because I cared about Michael. Didn't care about him one iota. I was not in the music business. I was trying to start a medical practice. But I felt Michael probably chose carefully. This guy definitely is high-end, has the right kind of patients who don't want to be in a hospital. You know, he, he's high-end enough that he'll hopefully create uh, an operating room for me that I'll be comfortable in. And 
best of all, he's a surgeon in the hospital that I'm doing my residency in. So I decided that would be the guy that I would approach. And I did. I approached him. He bought it hook, line, and sinker. And Michael showed up about eight years later. <laughs> so you get in there to his office, and you, so you start working out of his office. Who were some of the patients you dealt with in the early days? I mean, it was a lot of people who were getting plastic surgery. It was a lot of rich people. I mean, who were you dealing with? Oh, the upper, upper, the upper crust of uh, New York and world society, you know. Uh, I worked with, you know, I started in one office, but I expanded my practice, and I dealt with the top, the top cosmetic surgeons in New York City. And, you know, anybody on any given day could walk into the office. We had, you know, celebrities and, and business leaders and politicians and, uh, you know, high society women. Could be anybody. Now, how did you become involved with becoming an expert in, and I can't pronounce it properly, the P-R-O-P-O-L. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I, mean, I, I had it. And it's, it's so funny, though, because I was sitting there, and I, I was, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. They're like, oh, it's, you know, it'll take effect in 15 seconds. So I get down to, like, three. I'm like, I don't know. And boom, I'm out. But it's it's okay, gone. It, but it's good because. Did you, did, did you wake up and ask when they're going to start? I know, but it's funny. When you wake up, you don't. Like, there's always a thing that people feel like they say they think you know you hear, we woke we got our wisdom teeth taken out we woke up we had a stomach ache from the anesthesia or this or that with the with the with that one I, I still can't pronounce it uh, I I woke up and I was I was just I was fine I mean I sat there in recovery for a little bit and the only thing they said was I couldn't drive so my fiance had to come get me but if I I would have been able to drive because it wears off you very quick. Well, that was, that was exactly the point, Steve. So, all right, so now let's back up a little bit. I start office-based anesthesia. I tell you, the drugs are terrible. The monitors are terrible. I'm, I'm freaking out. You know, every day I go, to, I go to work nervous. I don't want to hurt anybody. I want to make the surgeons happy, so I want to keep the patients deep enough. It was pretty archaic stuff. And then all of a sudden, I start reading about a new drug that's just been approved and developed in Europe called Propofol. And when I start reading about the dynamics, just as you described, I think to myself, boy, as soon as this drug comes to the U.S., I'm going to be one of the first to get it because this is going to be, make my life a zillion times safer, easier, and, and, you know, anesthesia in general for anybody, but specifically for office anesthesia. Because in office anesthesia, many of the cases are done probably similar to the way you had yours done. There was no tube down your throat. You were breathing on your own. You were just semi-conscious from propofol and whatever else they gave you. That's the way a lot of office surgery is done. Uh, so propofol sounded like the perfect solution to, to my problems. And as soon as it became available in the United States, you know, I immediately ordered it. I immediately started using it. And I used it on every case, and I did lots of cases. Uh, I was an office-based anesthesiologist. By the time Michael came in eight years later, I had done thousands of cases with propofol, and I, I became, you know, an expert in using it. Now, when Michael came in, weren't you a little bit in awe? Because it's Michael Jackson. He's, you know, I mean, I know you were in the music business, but at one point, you know, Michael Jackson was the biggest star in the world. I mean... 
don't you sit there and worry a little bit? Like, if something bad happened, you'd be getting death threats. And be like, oh, you did something to Michael. How? Wait, what was that like when you first started working with him? You know, one of the reasons that I was successful in my practice is because I didn't get caught up in that. I could deal with celebrities having been in the rock and roll business. Okay, it wasn't Michael Jackson, but let me tell you something. You know, Pink Floyd, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, some of the groups that I were with were huge, mega huge back in the day when I was with them. And, and in my practice, I had to deal with a lot of mega stars, mega Hollywood stars, very important people in industry, politicians. So one of the reasons that surgeons liked to use my anesthesia, not only was I good at what I did, but I didn't get impressed. And let me tell you something. As an anesthesiologist, it's crucially important that you treat everybody exactly the same. You develop a routine, and you use that routine. I don't care if it's your mother, your sister, your wife, or Michael Jackson. You don't vary that routine, because when you do, bad things can happen. And in anesthesia, when bad things happen, they happen fast. So with Michael, that you became his personal physician too, or how how were you working with you worked with him for like eight years? How how was that time? I mean, I, I read that you you toured with him and you went to Neverland. I mean, what was what was that like? Well, basically, what happened was um, eight years after I started the practice. Now, in in most offices, when we had a special patient coming in the next day. I would speak with the surgeon. Surgeon would call me and give me a heads up because our practice was the night before I would talk to the patient, discussing their medical history, everything else. And sometimes if it was a celebrity, they'd want to call me rather than me call them. So I got a call in the afternoon, had a special patient, blah, 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 blah. And uh, after playing the game with me, he told me it was Michael. We did the procedure the next day. Michael and, all, and I immediately kind of hit it off. We, we started on the phone. Uh, and then when he saw what I looked like with a ponytail and an earring, you know, we just hit it off. And Michael's MO was, if he liked you, he would take your phone number and then he would call you at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. Loved to do that. That was his MO. Loved to do that. And so we did the procedure and maybe a week later I got one of those phone calls. And that started us on a, uh, a friendship. And, and, you know, we would talk a couple times a week. I would see him occasionally if he came to New York. And about a year later, he started to spend a lot of time in New York because he was booked to do two concerts at the Beacon Theater, which was going to be filmed by HBO. Uh, and this was in the fall of 1995. A couple of weeks before the concerts were scheduled to be filmed, it was Thanksgiving Day. I was having Thanksgiving dinner with my parents in my apartment in the city. I got a phone call, and it was Michael. And he got hysterical on the phone. Please help me. Please be my doctor. I can't do this. And uh, I was shocked. Uh, you know, we had developed a friendship, but we had never discussed this. As a matter of fact, we had talked about going on the road, and I said, no way would I ever be a tour doctor. <laughs> I said, that job is something I'm not interested in ever, having been there, and we laughed about that. But he asked me to, uh, to help him. I didn't know what I could do. But I identified three basic problems that he was having. 
thing, you know, and I, I was going to try and partially correct these problems so that he could do these uh, two concerts. And the three problems were he had a terrible sleep disorder. But even worse than that, he was constantly dehydrated and his nutrition was awful. So I tried to come up with a unique kind of treatment that would work in my hands and bring him into the office, you know, a couple of times a week for the next couple of weeks and see if I could uh, improve some of these things. And that's how it started. So what what was it like? Did you go on the road with him? Yeah, so what happened was I did a couple of the treatments. It was too little, too late. He ended up in the hospital anyway. We continued our friendship, our relationship, and then uh, quite surprisingly, <clears throat> I got a phone call uh, before he was going on the history tour, they wanted me to come out on the history tour. But I had a medical practice. It was almost impossible to do. We tried to work it out. It didn't happen. But by the end of the tour, by the third leg, the African leg, they were desperate to have me come, and I agreed. Uh, and so I, I went on the African leg of the history tour. And then from then till uh, when I stopped seeing Michael, last time I saw Michael was in 2002, I was actually with him every time he played publicly, which wasn't too many times. And so, you know, um, along the way, he also invited me to come out to Neverland to play, <laughs> to come see his place, hang out. And that was an incredible experience as well. He included me on a lot of very private, very incredible experiences. What's the food like in Neverland? That's just, I always think, um, like, there's big things. It's got to be, like, can, it's like they say in the White House, you can get anything. Or, like, in the Playboy Mansion when it was around, you could just, you could get anything. Like, you know, if you want lamb at 3 in the morning, you can get lamb. Was it like that in Neverland? Yes and no. I mean, the cooks left at about 5 o'clock, so you could raid the icebox and stuff. But if you wanted them to make you something, yeah. There were cooks around. They they were uh, Mexican cooks. They were fabulous. The food was great. <laughs> I had no complaints about the food in Neverland. Uh, but it was like a home. You know, it wasn't like a hotel, but just like the most amazing home you've ever seen. The home with an amusement park and a zoo and all kinds of other crazy things. Now, why did you stop being Michael's doctor? I My life took some twists and turns. So I started office-based anesthesiology, and I started in the cosmetic surgery world. But I wanted to expand my practice. And in the late 80s, uh, I saw that there was a new procedure called in vitro fertilization. I started reading about it, started in the UK, and it, it was coming to America, or it was already in America. And I saw that that was going to be uh, something that I could get involved in because I knew that these fertility guys would need to build operating rooms, they'd need anesthesiologists, and, and in most cases, the hospitals were not going to support them. This would be private enterprise. So I joined the New York Fertility Society, took a pocket full of business cards, went to the first meeting. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody even understood why I was there. Handed out my cards, and within three months, I had a huge fertility practice. Now, we thought that the insurance companies would certainly be responsible to at least pay for the first cycle, but we quickly found out that they wouldn't. And I had one physician, a very, very prominent New York physician, who said every woman deserves the right to have a baby, 
I'm going to build these fertility procedures as gynecological procedures. You can do what you like. He was my friend. We did a lot of surgery together, and I wrongly felt that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an outsourced guy, you know, and I'm a contract guy, and, uh, you know, I'm not overbilling, and I'm not doing anything wrong, and if he gets in trouble, he'll get in trouble. Well, didn't exactly happen that way. Uh, he got in trouble. I got caught up in the federal web, and, and ultimately, after uh, testifying for the prosecution and cooperating with uh, the uh, federal prosecutors and being promised uh, uh, a slap on the wrist and go on your way, I ended up with a uh, eight-month jail sentence, four months at home, four months with a bracelet, and a three years of supervised release with a, a ridiculous uh, restitution that I was supposed to pay. <laughs> so... Uh, Michael and I kind of parted ways. <laughs> so where do you go from there? Because that's pretty traumatizing what happened. And it's, you know, where you basically, did you have to restart? I mean, restart your career or did your career suffer or what happened? Well, I only lost my license for about six months and I had made a terrible deal with the state and I could have gone back to practice and I still have a medical license. But the whole experience left a terrible taste in my mouth. And let me say this, about six months after I got out of jail, New York State Legislature passed a law requiring the insurance companies to pay for at least the first cycle. So what are you going to say? Um, you know, I was bitter, I was angry, and I was finished. I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I uh, started looking for a new place to live <laughs> and a new career. And I ended up uh, up here in Woodstock, New York, the most famous little town in America, sort of completing my arc right. you know, from the 69 <laughs> Woodstock Festival. <laughs> and I messed around with a couple of different things. Uh, you know, a friend up here was in the construction business, so I worked with him on a spec house, and uh, I created a little digital record label. And then about five years ago, I got serious about writing my life story and, and seeing if I could take that somewhere into the future. I feel like I have so many good lessons uh, and so many good stories, you know, that hopefully I'll, I'll go out and talk to people and become a public speaker and maybe write more books and who knows. Well, when, so when you decide to write your own book, you sit down, you're looking at your whole life. Where do you start from? I mean, when, in, in your mind, do you sit there and think, you know, I mean, of course, your life stories come as a kid, but where do you start in your well, mind? Well, you know, interest, yeah, interestingly, that's not the way I started. Uh, when I first decided to write the book, which was probably back in 2002 when I was in prison, I actually started writing. It was going to be that, a chronological history of my life. When I actually went to write the book in earnest, I decided to do it a little bit differently. I decided that I would write the eight-year story of my relationship with Michael Jackson and cage my life within that story in flash-forwards, flashbacks, things like that. And I started in that way, and I felt like I needed people to help me. And so I called upon my old rock and roll guys. <laughs> I got a manager, the guy who hired me, Stuart Young for Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <laughs> He's still in the rock and roll business. I said, be my manager. He said, I don't do books. I said, come on, it's me. He became 
became my manager, and he opened up the door to all of his people. We had a he had an internet uh, specialist, a social media expert, who worked for him. And when he heard my old rock and roll stories, he said, "You you wrote the book wrong. You got to include that. That's so important." He said, "And I'll tell you what else. You're going to do a Facebook page. You're going to create Neil Ratner Rock Doc." And you're going to tell stories every day. And I did. I created that page. And, and I, you know, I've been doing it now for almost five years. And uh, 25,000 followers. Some of my stuff has had hundreds of thousands of views. So it's turned out to be an interesting thing. Um, and so then I added that part. And it sort of developed from there. And again, being self-published, I had a couple of editors who helped me along the way. Uh, relative to what should be in, maybe what shouldn't be in, how to phrase it, you know, stuff like that. Well, you know, I, I was, you know, uh, John, the wonderful John Lappin, who is uh, is a great PR guy. I deal with a lot of PR people. I deal with a lot of managers. I deal with actual people, and a lot of them flake. John has got me some great guests, and it's straightforward. Like he says, "Hey, do you want to do interview this person?" I go, "Yeah," and the next day I'm interviewing him, um, which is, he's, <laughs> he's great at that. Well, when I read the press release, you know, it's saying. It's your rock and roll. It's Michael Jackson, your prison sentence, and Nelson Mandela. Now, where does Nelson Mandela fit into the story? Nelson Mandela fits into the story because when we went to Africa for the first time, when I went to Africa with Michael, when I was first on tour with Michael on the history tour, um, Mandela was the president of South Africa at that time. It was 1997, the fall of 97. Mandela was a personal hero of mine. And when I knew that I was going on the tour, you know, I, I went to Michael and I said, hey, you know, man, this is a personal hero of mine. you got to make it happen. I, I, you know, make sure I get introduced, a picture. Oh, oh, don't worry, Matt, you'll get a picture, you'll get a picture. And sure enough, on that first occasion... In his dressing room, uh, I got to shake Mandela's hand, and then Michael called me down to take pictures with, with just private pictures with Michael and his family and management and me. <laughs> I was, like, shocked, but it was wonderful. But it got even better than that because a couple of years later, uh, we did a couple of charity concerts, one in Munich and one in Seoul, Korea. Uh, and the money was going to go half to the Red Cross and half to Nelson Mandela's children's box. And Mandela had had a lot to do with influencing Michael to go out and do something, you know, like that. And so uh, about six months, I guess, after the concert, I got a call from Michael, and, and my 50th birthday was approaching. And he, you know, he called me up and said, Rat, Rat, I want to give you a 50th birthday present, which was pretty amazing because when I met Michael, he was a Jehovah's Witness and didn't celebrate birthdays. But that's a whole other story. At any rate, I said, you don't have to give me a birthday present. He said, no, no, I want to give you a birthday present. He said, you know those concerts we did for Mandela? I said, yeah. He said, let's go to South Africa and give him the check. I want you to come with me. And it was right around my birthday. I said, great. And he said, you know, this is no work. We're just going to do this. And we're going to give it to him at the African equivalent of the Grammys, the Cora Awards. And so, sure enough, uh went as Michael's guest, spent two weeks in South Africa, went to the Cora Awards, incredible experience, and on the day of the awards, I think, in the afternoon, I had the incredible good fortune that Michael invited me uh, to spend the afternoon 
uh, in his suite with Mandela, the kid, Mandela's wife. And so I got to spend really significant amount of time with him. Uh, and later on, when I moved to Woodstock and I started a charity, he heard about it and he helped finance our first project. So what it's is a the, great story. And, yeah. what, what is the charity? The charity is International Community Bakeries. And what happened was when I got to Woodstock, there's a local baker up here uh, who's got a series of bakeries. He had gone to South Africa. He got taken by the AIDS thing, wanted to do something. I read an article in the local paper. He and I got together, and we created this uh, NGO, uh, not-for-profit, to create small micro-bakeries for the poorest of the poor. And the four reasons to do that is, one, employment, two, training of disadvantaged youth, three, better bread for kids, and four, create sustainable businesses in those kind of communities. Not enough money to go around. You can't just keep handing out money. You have to give people some kind of a trade. Give them something that they could do so that they can maintain their dignity and make a living. And we decided bakeries would be a good thing. And um, so when we decided to do this and we needed to finance it, Mandela heard about it through another good friend of his, who's like his adopted son, who became a real good friend of mine. Uh, he had gone to Mandela to tell him about the charity, and Mandela said, look, I'm going to send him five of my coffee table books, tell him to hold a fundraiser, auction the books off, I'll endorse them any way that the uh, buyer wants. We did that, and uh, with that and the uh, fundraiser, we raised enough money for the first bakery. So you've done a lot, and all this is in the book. What, yep. what did you... <laughs> What, and more. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, there's a lot more. What What have you gotten from writing the book? How, how do you feel? Do you feel very accomplished? Do you feel you can do more? What is your mind frame when you finally got finished that book? I felt, you know, I felt, it certainly felt a sense of accomplishment. You know, try to sit down every day with a blank piece of paper in front of you and don't leave the desk until you fill it up. Not an easy chore if you're not prone to that, if you're not inclined to that. So I was very proud of myself that I actually persevered, spent all that time, uh, and, and accomplished that. But more than that, you know, when you do something like that, it's a recapitulation of your life. And it gives you a chance to look at things from a whole different perspective in a different time frame. And that's very valuable relative to moving forward and improving yourself and, and knowing where your faults are and what you might have improved and what you might not have improved. So it was a real, uh, you know, it was a really interesting experience in that regard. Uh, and, uh, you know, also I feel good about the fact that, that the actual propofol story is now out there for anyone who wants to read. I felt like I owed Michael a debt. I couldn't let that story just lie the way it was. People needed to know the beginning of the story and how that all occurred. And I feel good that I was able to tell that story and a lot of the other great stories that are in the book relative to don't let other people defeat you, believe in yourself, you can change career and be successful. So, you know, in all those aspects, I think it was a really good experience for me. And would I do it again? I don't know. 
Exactly. You know, I want to thank you, Neil, for coming on. People, go to the website. It's Neil Ratner Rock Doc, and it's Neil N E I L, because there's a lot of different ways to spell Neil. I have a friend, Neil Bobel, who spells it N E H L, but he's been spelling it like that since 1988, so he's not one of these people who moved to LA and just changed their name. And <laughs> I mean, I, I see it all the time. Um, and so you can, and you can buy the book on your website. And your Facebook page. Oh, and let me just say this, Steve. If if they go to my website, they buy the book. I'll autograph it anyway they want. Okay. And if and your Facebook page is Facebook.com/slash Neil Ratner Rock Doc. So basically, we just you got it. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, people. Uh, just so you know, people go go to my website. Go to his Neil's website. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find I think it's 725 episodes up there. Email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.